I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2011. Coming up, we'll hear how NCAR's Warren Washington became one of the world's great climate scientists. I have 16 grandchildren and one great-grandchild. I'd like to see the world much better solving problems, and climate change is one of those problems. And we'll talk with the author of a new book on the history and promise of renewable technology. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The biggest impact we humans may have on natural environments worldwide may be that we've caused the top predators to disappear. That's the finding of an international review of ecology research published last week in the journal Science. Predators like wolves, sharks, and large fish are crucial to ecosystems on land, at sea, and in freshwater lakes and rivers. Throughout history, humans have decimated those and similar species by hunting them and disrupting their habitats. Left to themselves, top predators cover large ranges and keep prey species in check. Removing them can cause widespread effects to cascade through the food web, altering entire ecosystems. Without wolves, for instance, elk can kill native vegetation. That change would affect other other species, causing even more changes that harm even more species, and so on. The paper's authors, led by marine ecologist James Estes of the University of California, say many of these impacts have been hard to see directly. They surveyed a wide variety of research to find evidence of long-term changes in environments where top predators were displaced. They say their findings demonstrate the need for large-scale conservation efforts that make the health of top predators a top priority. And as Boulder swelters in a heat spell, scientists at the National Climatics Data Center have released their monthly analysis of the global climate. The verdict? For June, the global average temperature of the Earth's surface was the seventh largest on record. June was also the 316th consecutive month with a global temperature above the 20th century average. You have to go back a quarter century in the climate records to February 1985 to find any month with a below average temperature. On the flip side, global temperatures, as calculated by NASA, have dropped a bit since 2009. And while the decade that ended last December was the warmest 10 years on record, temperatures didn't rise as fast as they did during the previous several decades. So what's going on? A study published in late June in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences finds that sulfur pollution spewing from Chinese power plants are to blame. The pollution creates particles that reflect solar energy back into space, thereby tempering some of the warming from the CO2 emissions. Of course, much of those coal plants power the manufacturing goods sold to consumers in the U.S. Whether the new study is right or not, scientists point out that climate change, by definition, plays out decade to decade, not merely year to year. So relatively cool periods will necessarily be embedded in the long-term trend of warming. Meanwhile, the weather, as distinct from the climate, has turned sizzling in Boulder. In fact, Much of the country is suffering from an unusually intense and widespread heat wave. According to long-range forecasts, the ridge of high pressure causing the widespread heat is likely to remain stuck for at least a week, and possibly until the end of July. Thanks to Tom Mulesman for that report. This week's All Ages show at Fisk Planetarium holds a very special place in my heart. The show is called Adventures Beyond the Solar System, and it was originally one of the Planetron audiobooks that were personal favorites of mine. 
It tells the story of 10-year-old Will, whose educational robot toy Planetron just happens to transform into a spaceship and take him on adventures throughout the universe. Here's a sample from the original audio tape that I listened to over and over as a child. A thousand light years from Earth, an incredible flaming fan shape fills the sky. The Orion Nebula. Nebula means cloud, and that's just what this was. A gas and dust cloud over 40 light years in diameter. Inside, stars were blazing to life. Planetron explained. Hot young stars caused the clouds of gas and dust that they were born in to glow, similar to the way electrical current causes gas to shine in a fluorescent light. How about a look inside? HZ gave an excited yelp, and I tightened my seatbelt as we plunged into the heart of the enormous nebula. You can join Will on his Adventures Beyond the Solar System this Wednesday, July 20th at 10 a.m. For ticket prices and other information, check the Planetarium website at fisk, that's F-I-S-K-E, dot colorado dot E-D-U. As the impact of human-caused climate change grows, so does the need to measure and understand it. One of the world's leaders in doing this works here in Boulder at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Warren Washington has dedicated his life to solving problems, from the personal challenges he faced to get an education to fighting climate change. Here's more from How on Earth's Shelley Schlender. Warren Washington says that when he was a boy in the 1930s, scanning the night sky through his father's telescope, he was already thinking like a scientist. I always had a strong feeling that I wanted to understand everything. I wanted to know how things worked. Washington held on to that feeling, even after a high school science advisor told him that because he was an African-American, he should train for something practical, such as business. He didn't think that a child with my background should bother getting a science education. In those days, even when African-Americans graduated from college, they were often barred from professional careers. But Washington says his parents wanted a better future for their son, so they urged him to follow his dreams. And he encouraged himself by reading the biographies of such towering scientific pioneers as physicist Albert Einstein, inventor Thomas Edison, and agricultural chemist George Washington Carver, an African-American. Their lives, Washington says, were an inspiration. It actually convinced me that I can go into science because when you read their life stories, um, they came from what seemed to be fairly ordinary families. And uh, since I read those books, I said, geez, I think I can do this too. At Oregon State, a physics professor with a passion for climate studies rekindled Washington's boyhood interest in the skies. Washington also excelled in physics, a skill which led to a summer job as a research mathematician with scientists who were just beginning to use computers to forecast the weather. By today's standards, the machines were primitive. Still, Washington says, if you input accurate data about today's weather, those computers could predict tomorrow's weather. What surprised everyone is that the skill of the forecast was pretty much the same as a skilled forecaster. So everyone immediately saw great promise 
Washington became the second African-American in the U.S. to earn a Ph.D. in atmospheric science. In 1963, he drove to Boulder to join the federally funded National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR. Researchers at NCAR had a more advanced tool for scientists, a room-sized complex of giant computers, each the size of a modern refrigerator. And they ran very slow, and I wouldn't be surprised if the amount of memory we had was smaller than you can get on an iPhone. Still, those computers helped NCAR scientists forecast the weather several days in advance. And with Washington's expertise, their capabilities continued to expand. At first, NCAR focused on natural influences on climate, such as volcanic eruptions and solar flares. Then, in 1978, Washington says, the U.S. Department of Energy asked the scientists to study something that was not natural. They wanted to accelerate the use of our models for investigating climate change caused by increasing carbon dioxide. In other words, man-caused. NCAR's model revealed that as human activities such as coal-fired power plants generate more CO2, weather throughout the world will become more severe. Washington improved the power of the computer models, and he explained them to policymakers. I've actually worked with five presidential administrations, most of them with presidential appointments. These days, NCAR uses high-speed supercomputers to store and analyze data ranging from how oceans and sea ice affect the climate to how plants and burning coal and even burning grass influence what may happen in the years ahead. Washington says the resulting data is widely available. Our models can be downloaded by anyone. NCAR's leading-edge climate modeling has won Washington growing recognition and acclaim. In 2007, he received a Nobel Prize as a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Last fall, he was one of 10 researchers to win the National Medal of Science. So the child, who once read biographies of scientists, has himself become a world-famous scientist. But Washington says his primary motivation is something deeper. Just as his parents wanted a better future for their children, he wants the same for his. I have 16 grandchildren and one great-grandchild. I'd like to, to, to see the world much better in terms of solving problems, and, and climate change is one of those problems. And while Washington continues to improve NCAR's climate models, he's also writing an autobiography to inspire others, he says, to become scientists and perhaps join his effort to study and combat global climate change. I'm Shelley Schlender. Thanks to Shelley for that report. Warren Washington's autobiography is called Odyssey in Climate Modeling, Global Warming, and Advising Five Presidents. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran. There was a time not so long ago, well, before the 1860s, when bicycles were the norm and gasoline emerged as a waste product of kerosene, which was used for lighting, and when crude oil was what you might call the environmentally sound alternative to oil from whales, which were nearly hunted to extinction. A new book about renewable energy sheds light on how the current push for greener energy, greener appliances, greener buildings, and more has deep roots including green tech entrepreneurs. The book also pays tribute to our local bastion of green technology, the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden. I spoke recently with Alexis Madrigal, a senior editor for The Atlantic magazine, who wrote the new book. It's called Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. 
Here's... To me, what distinguishes the book partly from a lot of other books on green tech, and you weave all these tales of history, sort of beacons on the trail and lessons learned and lessons lost, you know, going way back to the 1800s. And I wanted you to start by helping us look back and appreciate some of what had been there way before many may know it. Like, for instance, the tale of the windmills dotting the prairie landscape in the early to mid-1800s and how eventually when crude oil was discovered, that was the alternative energy. Windmills have definitely been forgotten. Uh, In a sense, it was one of the more successful uh, consumer innovations, uh, really, of the the late 19th century. Um, You know, it's estimated, uh, just by one historian, that there might have been uh, six million um, factory-produced uh, windmills uh, that were made in the 19th and early 20th century. Six million? Um, and untold wow. amounts of other ones that were just created by people in their backyards out of whatever they had as they tried to survive out there on the prairies. Um, and I think if you think about just the numbers there, it's really the most successful power, consumer power device, uh, really until cars. What was the particular turning point that made crude oil, you know, not the sort of obscure alternative energy, but what really took over? Oil is a really interesting story. Uh, for a long time, people had known that it was around. Uh, rock oil, it would be called, and oftentimes it would just float up in pools. And um, people knew you could do something with it, but you know we didn't really know uh, how to refine it. And it was not uh, at all clear that there were these massive pools of it underground. Um, and so in western Pennsylvania, um, in an area that came to be known as Petrolia, right. um, some people uh, started to, to drill for oil. I mean, really, they were kind of uh, chipping for oil. They were dropping a heavy thing down a hole, <laughs> touched off um, a, the, the first oil uh, craze as people flocked to that region. And you know, the, real, the real big um, market there uh, for oil was that it, it turned out that you put things, you, you could essentially distill out uh, various types of, of liquids out of crude oil, and one of those was kerosene. And so really, at first, oil was used as uh, uh, for lighting. And uh, one interesting consequence of that is that it meant that this gasoline stuff was actually um, a, a waste product. And, and, of course, this was actually had some positive environment, environmental repercussions, too, uh, in that we had basically hunted whales nearly to extinction, particularly whales that had uh, lots of oil in their bodies. Um, and that practice uh, continued but sort of abated a little because you could just, you know, it's cheaper and easier to get it from uh, crude oil. And then I think for those who are living here on the Front Range in Colorado, what's very near and dear to our hearts is the now called... National Renewable Energy Lab, formerly CERI, the Solar Energy Research Institute. And you give at least a whole chapter or two in the book to its history in the 70s, a sort of boom and then a near collapse and resurgence, and we've had this contraction and expansion. Describe like, yeah. what, what you think really happened in the 70s to get it kicked sure. off, and what, what are some of the lessons learned from that? It's interesting. I mean, the Solar Energy Research Institute is a good uh bearable for, for what has happened with uh, solar energy research uh, more generally. Um, you know, it was sort of called into being in the mid-1970s um, as there were all of these oil crises. Um, you know, there was just sort of the realization that U.S. oil 
um, in the in the lower 48 had peaked. There was this realization that we were importing more and more oil, and then as all of that was, of that was happening, OPEC um, you know, embargoed the United States, and we weren't able to get as much oil. And so, you know, everyone has been thinking about these things on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so we realized, oh, well, maybe we should be investing um, some research and development dollars into into new uh, technologies that would maybe help us get off of oil or have alternatives ready. And this is even uh, prior to Jimmy Carter coming into office, right? prior to Jimmy Carter, yeah. I mean, I think if you go back, you know, the idea of energy independence, the idea of getting America foreign oil, I mean, goes back, you know, before Nixon. I mean, basically every single president, like after Truman, sort of realized that um, having, you know, the entire United States transportation infrastructure dependent on oil from other places uh, was probably kind of a bad idea. And in terms of who are some of the drivers behind green technology, you start your book. I think it's this interesting kind of emotional passage with John Doerr, one of the prominent venture capitalists at Kleiner Perkins at a 2007 TED talk, essentially crying or choking up as he describes his daughter saying, hey, dad, your generation's made the problem. You guys have to clean it up. And that was kind of a turnaround for him. And I know since then, Kleiner Perkins and Vinod Kosla and other big names have pumped billions into some which, I mean, do you think have helped accelerate or to some degree have actually thwarted the growth of some smart technology? Because there's been a lot of money put into not so smart yeah, projects. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think um, I think there's almost no doubt that the green the, event, the green venture capitalists and the green technologists have been a good thing. Um, largely just, you know, failure is important too, right? <laughs> Even when things <laughs> don't go well, uh, it's, we are, we're trying things. And so many more things have been tried in the last few years because there's been this sort of small-scale venture money uh, multiplied out by tons of companies. Um, so that tons of companies have a little bit of money to try out their idea and see, see what's working and, and what's not. And maybe more importantly, or, or at least something that I, I've found to be um, important is the the green VCs came into the um, came into the space with just an entirely different attitude than the people who had been working um, in solar power before. Um, in and what I think, sense? Uh, well, you know, I think they didn't come into it um, with an ideological commitment to the environment as we think of environmentalism coming out of the 1960s. Uh, they came into it as, you know, what I would call climate hawks. There were people who were pretty much uh, solely interested in figuring out solutions to climate change. You know, they weren't clean air and clean water guys. That's not what they were interested right. in. Um, they were interested in designing solutions that would, you know, reduce carbon emissions. And I think they also came into it with just a pure uh, business mindset, right? Like, we want to create businesses. Like, we're, we're not trying to, you know, reform the people. We're trying to work with the people's consumer desires or to deliver them things that reduce carbon emissions. And I think having that attitude um, was both politically useful, I think, um, in, in terms of gaining more support for green technology and the concept of green jobs and all these things. Um, and I actually think it was useful for a lot of companies. Who've been some of the beacons on the trail, you know, the heroes who've most inspired you? Uh, there's, some, there's some great characters um, in the, in the mid-century um, who I think are really important, not because of necessarily the, the technology that they developed, but because um, they thought about the problems of green technology and energy in the same ways that we do now, um, at least on the green technology side of things. Um, so there were two guys, uh, Van Ever Bush, who actually um, was... Uh, one of the, the key figures in the early Manhattan Project and was FDR science advisor um, and his kind of, who I like to think of as his sidekick, uh, this guy Palmer Putnam, uh, developed the first megawatt 
uh, wind turbine, and they put it up in Vermont right as kind of the war was getting going, uh, World War II, that is. Um, and what's, what's fascinating is you go back and you read what they're saying. I mean, they really sound like green venture capitalists. Um, and so I think it was really important for me to to include them as beacons along the, the path, as you're saying, just because I think, um, you know, so often people's inclusion in the environmental movement has been decided by their sort of uh, purity of their feelings about nature and things. And so a lot of these people who have things to contribute to renewable energy and the sort of environmental uh, benefits there um, have been excluded from the canon, sort of. And uh, another person that I would say, although he's probably more in it, is uh, Farrington Daniels. Another great character, a guy who actually designed a, a nuclear reactor, was also involved in the Manhattan Project, but then became the most influential solar advocate, basically, of the kind of uh, 1950 to 1975 period. For cities and especially states, what, 30-plus maybe of them now, that had set years ago the renewable portfolio standards to get you know 20% renewables by 2020, mm-hmm. or I think they're in various degrees, mm-hmm. um, what's your sense of the track record there and how big of a, you know, big of an effort that is so far and can be particularly in this absence of federal climate yeah, legislation. I mean, well, you know, I think cities um, have a have a kind of variable uh, record around these things. Um, but the 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 important thing I think around thinking about cities and their relationship to climate change is that they're labs, right? Every city um, is a is a lab for for policy experimentation. There's a distinct electorate. There's a distinct geography. Um, but as they learn lessons, they can transport them to other cities really quickly um, because other cities are trying to solve the same basic problem set, you know, like water, waste, power, et cetera. And, and uh, we are now able to, to draw on lessons from cities across the entire globe. And I think um, the, for me at least, um, that makes it more likely that real solutions will emerge there than out of like a massive global compact. Uh, and maybe that's just like completely the Silicon Valley coming out in me. <laughs> but like the, the idea that there would be thousands of little people all trying lots of different things and sharing information like crazy, as opposed to like a few big like behemoth um, nations trying to hammer out some agreement in some smoky back room, you know? I mean, I sort of feel like... Uh, you know, uh, to me, I'm, it seems like I'm more interested in slash have more faith in the idea that the, the, all the little guys getting banding together in these kind of ad hoc informational networks would, would have a, a better chance of delivering a real solution. That was Alexis Madrigal, author of the new book, Powering the Dream, The History and Promise of Green Technology. So we played a short clip from the interview during the recent KGNU Pledge Drive and offered a book to donors. We have a limited number of copies of the book left. You can get yourself one if you call now and pledge to KGNU. So call 303-449-4885. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and this week's show producer was also Susan Moran. Our engineer was Shelley Schlender, and we had additional contributions from Tom Yulesman. Tim Morton wrote our theme music, Tom Wassinger produced it, and we had additional music from Techler and John Stubbs. And we're still accepting entries for our theme song contest, but only until July 26th. That's next Tuesday. More information is on our website at howonearthradio.org slash contest. You can also visit our website anytime at howonearthradio.org. 
Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Ted Burnham.